Welcome to We Gotta Talk, a live weekly talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. From health to relationships to alternative lifestyles and more, the one thing you will always get is a deep dive. Tons of details, juice, dirt, the works. You get it. I'm Sunny, a 15-year veteran of TV news, freelance writer, blogger, mom of three, and wife. But most of all, I'm just a die-hard oversharer. Someone who's genuinely curious about, well, everything around me. And I can't wait for you to join in on these conversations that I promise will impact, inspire, and entertain you. Now, let's talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am Sunny. Um, if you're new here, welcome. This podcast is all about deep dives on juicy topics, and it's a rebrand from my old show, which was up and ready for, gosh, I, I think three years, um, which was 30-something with Sunny, but Sister Friend is aging out of the 30s bracket. In fact, I just turned 39 two days ago, so woohoo! Um, yeah, celebrated with the Publix cake and a jump on the trampoline with my children that resulted in a trip to the chiropractor yesterday because hashtag old. Listen, I will say before I get into today's guest, um, you hear people talk about getting older all the time and what happens, you know, as you approach your forties and all of a sudden you walk out of bed and you're all creaky. Listen, I'm here to say it's true. Like never ever did I think I would be the type of person that would require a doctor's visit after jumping on the trampoline for maybe a total of 13 minutes. Like this was not some high aerobic moment for me or some you know, gold medal level gymnastics. This was just me bouncing on, on the trampoline with my three children. And it resulted in a, a sore neck like you would not believe. Laid out all day yesterday, the day after my birthday. It was a real, real circus. So um, yeah, gosh, hats off to people living with any chronic uh, syndrome or illness that causes daily pain. I feel you in a way I haven't before. Um, yesterday was awful, awful. Anyhow, um, this episode of We Gotta Talk is really special to me because it's all about a topic that I have been passionate about, passionate about for quite some time. The guest is Sam Gianti. She is the founder of The Idea Mix, which is a platform that people can turn to for actionable um, tips and insights into how to pivot professionally speaking. So um, Sam's bio and background is pretty incredible. Um, She attended Harvard College and Harvard Business School. She serves as a board member of AmeriCares, one of the largest healthcare-focused humanitarian aid NGOs in the world. She has a family, three children, and she is in New York. And she is a woman whose presence alone makes you um, just stop and listen. I found the idea mix. Uh, came across it in a series of sort of like business-related emails, immediately searched the company and was just really, really taken by their platform and what they aim to do. So they give you tools to help you realize your passions. If you've been listening for a while to the podcast, you know that um, sort of the previous iteration of the show, 30-something, was all about second chapters, which is what I called pivots or changes that people make in their professional lives. Uh, For me, and I've been really vocal about this, one of the big things that happened in my life that led me down a different uh, professional path was becoming a mom and requiring a little bit of a change in sort of the... um, 
expression of my passion. So the idea mix is the perfect platform for anybody who finds himself in a situation where you want to make a tweak to your, uh, your job or your career that helps you to feel more fulfilled, but also can actually make you money and give you a future. So Sam and I dig into all things entrepreneurship, uh, what it takes to get a company off the ground, her thought behind the varying philosophies of the best way to launch. You know, do you just jump right in or do you plan, plan, plan everything down to the last detail? Um, we talk about managing um, that whole situation, the entrepreneurial life with a family. As I mentioned, she has three children. Um, we talk about very specific things you should be doing or considering before you make any jumps or changes in your career path. And I have to give you a little bit of a heads up here. I cry in this episode. I don't know what, like, I don't know what came over me. Actually, I do. First of all, Sam is just very wise and deliberate in her choice of words. And she's one of those people who, when she speaks, I, I felt so soothed and educated just by sitting and listening to her. So I was very, very into the conversation. So um, when we started naturally going down the path of discussing our families and specifically our daughters and raising our daughters in this crazy, wacko, bonkers world, um, I just lost it a little bit. I mean, it's weird because I spent 15 years in news really suppressing that visceral urge I have to express my emotion on like you know, very intense stories. So really good usually at keeping that under wraps, but I blame the PMS. I don't know what it was. It's, it's the pandemic. I was just feeling very, um, I was just really very, very passionate about, um, digging into that issue in particular with Sam. And I love her insight and wisdom into, um, raising our young girls in this crazy time. In fact, she even talks about a specific book that, um, and I will put it in show notes that she read to sort of help her shift and change her perspective on how to deal with our, our kids, specifically our daughter's anxieties about growing up in this, in this crazy world. So anyhow, I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Seriously, if you are in any way, shape or form thinking about a pivot in your professional life, this is where you start. Um, her website is theideamix.com. You'll hear us talk quite a bit about that and pass this episode along to anybody who is in need of some inspiration or some really practical tips on getting a great idea or product or service off the ground. I will be back on the flip side, as always, with more information. But in the meantime, enjoy. I would love to start off just by hearing the um, the idea behind Idea Mix and what its genesis was and what you were aiming, what, what hole in the market you were aiming to fill with it. Sure. I've done a bunch of different things over the course of my career, and I was fortunate to be able to hop around and change industries sort of relatively seamlessly. Um, and, and when, you know, did finance, did consulting, um, did tech before starting Ideamix. And throughout that time, I was struck by two things. You know, one, the fact that the job market is in a massive state of sort of dislocation and constant flux. And there are a couple of, you know, just in the recent history, sort of two big events that have really sped that up, the financial crisis in 08, and now, of course, the pandemic and sort of the after effects. Um, and what it has been striking is that so many people are not well equipped to deal with that change and struggle to kind of navigate what those changes imply for them. You know, in parallel, I've always had this sort of big interest in entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. 
And the melding of the two came, and this was the insight that sort of underpinned idea mix, that each individual, irrespective of whether they decide to be an entrepreneur or not, needs a set of entrepreneurial skills to navigate their professional lives, irrespective whether they're returning after a break because they've taken care of a family for a while, whether they're sort of you know, starting to create an entrepreneurial venture and, you know, you might be going slow or fast depending on the pacing and stage of life, or you're sort of going, you know, full frontal into some technology oriented startup and raising money and all those things, or you're working at a company um, for someone, but you've got to exhibit these entrepreneurial skills that allow you to become, to be agile and to adopt and embrace change and sort of foresee it. Um, so that's really the central idea is how do we teach and encourage and hone entrepreneurial skills? And that's what we're trying to do at IDMX. When you say entrepreneurial skills, I think a lot of people associate that word with, like you said, starting a company or scrapping for a few years to like get something up and running. But like you said, entrepreneurial skills can mean other things too, even if you're working within a greater structure. So when you say that, what what exact, what specific skills are you sort of helping people hone as they, um, as they work with you? Yeah. So um, that's a great question. I think um, there, there are really sort of three different things that um, we're very focused on. One is this idea of, um, finding the intersection for each person between what their passions are, who they are as a person, and their work interests and opportunities that they have access to, right? And I think the most um, successful, happy, thriving work lives and individuals come from finding the intersection of those three things. Um, and I think finding that intersection takes some work, right? There's a high degree of self-awareness. There needs to be sort of an objectivity in assessing yourself and sort of being realistic about what you like, don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. Um, what are you super passionate about? But what are sort of, you know, the things you like to do within pursuing that passion? And what are the things you may not like to do that much? And are you actually going to be willing to undertake those? Um, and then third, you know, what is the opportunity set that's available to you, right? And how are you going to sort of take the combination of here's something I'm super passionate about, here's sort of who I am as a person, and then kind of bridge that with the opportunity set to really find an idea that has resonance. Um, I think what that requires is, um, so once you found, I think, that intersection of those three things, I mean, you know this from running your business, you know, starting and running a company is hard. And whether you're small or big, there is an endless set of decisions and pivots um, that are just part of the process and the journey. And the only way to tackle those is by setting in place a process to actually kind of make agility a part of the culture, right, of your organization and, and a part of you. Um, and so the second way that we really work with people is in helping them prototype an idea. So you have a great idea. You've sort of figured out that it's the combination of your passions, your skills and strengths and an opportunity that you perceive in the market. And now what do you do, right? Um, and I think prototyping is in, in, you know, it's one of those simultaneously simple and complex things where 
on the one hand, your goals are super simple. I need to build a product or service. I need to identify the first 50 or 100 people who are actually going to buy this thing. And I've got to figure out how to get that product or service to them. And at the same time, people get you know, so caught up in sort of the perfect version of their product or service, they don't focus on the other two things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think developing a prototype that is really, you know, you're not taking an investment, you're not take, putting in big dollars, you are putting in a lot of your time and sweat equity, but you're really trying to build the kind of, you know, band-aid and toothpicks version of your idea that actually gets it off the ground and allows you to validate that this idea has resonance and there's a customer there for it. I've heard in, um, people fall into one of two camps when it comes to starting their own venture, and that's people who jump first and figure it out on the way down. And there are some people, like you said, who plot and plan and scheme and are very specific and how they decide how and when they decide to launch. Um, Is there a preferred way if someone has an idea that they know has legs in the market? Is there a better way to do it? Or is the decision you make more a factor of your personality um, and how you launch? I think um, it's such a great question because in my experience, the decision, you know, which path someone chooses is almost entirely a function of someone's kind of innate personality. But the most effective approach that works on a consistent basis that actually leads to these companies succeeding is the person who decides to do both of those things, right? So there's, I I think in any entrepreneurial endeavor, there's a bit of a leap of faith where you just sort of throw yourself off the cliff and trust in the process and you'll kind of figure it out on your way down. Um, But I think the more figuring it out you can do in anticipation of I'm going to be on this kind of quick trajectory down and I've got to have some ideas and constructs in place, then the more prepared you are. And I think um, the biggest factor, I mean, when you think about startups and small businesses and failure rates, right, the failure rate is incredibly high. It's 90%. 90% of small businesses don't make it. I mean, that's huge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the number one reason why companies don't make it within that sort of 90% is that they fail to find a product market fit, right? They either spend a ton of time designing their product and it's perfect in every way, but they haven't bridged that with the actual customer and what is the feedback and are they actually willing to pay for this and what is the feature functionality that the, that the consumer of that product actually wants to see, not sort of your idealized perception of what your product needs to be. And so I think you know successful entrepreneurs know and understand that they've got to channel that instinct to leap with preparation. And then when you meld the two, you know, there's a huge amount of success. If you're in an industry where you're not producing and selling a tactile object, if you're in the business, you know, of selling information, of selling um, media, of selling um, a good, a, a service that's not, like I said, an actual good, how and what metrics are best to use to measure that? I know it will be industry specific, but um, I do think it tends to be a little easier for people who can look at a spreadsheet and measure the amount of sales, you know, of their particular product versus someone who's, who's, who's measuring something that's not tangible. So what tips and tactics do you have for people who are in that space? Yeah. um, You know, kind of another sort of essential element, right? Because without some parameters of 
progress, it's impossible to gauge success or failure. Um, I, I think there, there are two kind of key parameters. You know, one is um, what are the goals that you're setting yourself? And they may not be monetary, right? They may be, um, let's say you're a podcaster, that goal might be, I want to grow listenership. I'm not concerned about the dollars and cents, but I want a bigger audience, right? Or you may say, I do want the dollars and cents and, you know, how am I going to bring in ad revenue and how am I going to find my first sponsor? Whatever that set of parameters is, I think needs to be pretty clear in a uh, founder's mind because without that goal to work towards and without a benchmark to assess yourself against, how do you judge success or failure? Um, But then I think the second element of that is having the flexibility and agility to adjust to changing circumstances, right? If you think about 2020, it's been a year unlike any other for all of us. And there's a sort of universality to that for the first time. Um, And it's forced a real rethink um, and, and a significant change in how we all go about our work lives. And it's also caused a change in those evaluation parameters. You know, are you gonna meet those benchmarks? Do they need to be scaled back? Do they actually need to be increased because your business is doing super well as a result of the pandemic? Um, so I think those two things in combination then lead to the right outcome. Are there any traits that you notice that tend to surface in successful entrepreneurs time and time again? A few. Um, So I would say, number one, you know, successful entrepreneurs are really good at finding motivation within themselves, right? I mean, we've all had days where, you know, something bad happens or there's a sense of hopelessness or, you know, you just don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. And I think conquering those days and saying, you know, I am going to put in place a process which gets me out of bed, which gets me going. And I'm not going to think about, you know, is this day going to turn into a mega success or not? Because that's impossible to evaluate on the day of in any case. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's one quality. I think the second is they are, um, they know and understand that being a founder or leading an organization, whether that's, you know, a huge organization or a small one, is a lonely process fundamentally in some way. And so however great your team is around you, I think you always need to be looking for people on the outside who become sort of thought partners, mentors, sounding boards, um, a sort of safe space where you can say anything that pops into your head and you can ask whatever questions come into your mind. You know, I mean, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan has those and every founder needs to have those, right? It's, it's just always a need. I think third, they're charismatic and are good at leading teams. And that comes or requires a very high degree of emotional intelligence, right? You can't really, you know, you can't do everything yourself and you can't get people doing things for you unless you actually care about them and their sort of fulfillment out of their work and role. Um, but also understand how to adapt to different personalities and how to have, you know, kind of the whole boat growing in the same direction and not everybody going off, you know, on different tangents. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I know I'm in a spot and a lot of other people who have, you know, launched their their businesses in the past couple of years of finally admitting the need for help. And it is really, it's been interesting to, um, 
first of all, source the right people and, and then find ways you, you find yourself um, questioning, okay, am I keeping this person happy? They're so valuable to the outcome of this product or this, this service that like I need them. Um, you know, how can I work with them? And I know I, I just been hearing you say that and it's kind of like ringing some bells. And um, I do think that's just a sort of pivotal moment as you grow is just um, the, the realization for the need of health and then realizing, oh my gosh, I have to really figure out how to do this now. It's like a separate little family almost. Totally. It is a separate little family and, and it's exactly that a family, right? Because you've got to tend to these people and, and sort of care for them in the same way that one does with one's own family. Right. Um, And, and that is, you know, kind of 30 to 40% of, of how anybody leading any endeavor spends their time. And that's a big chunk of it, you know, how do you, where do you fall on, because I know you're at the head of, of what you're doing with IDMX, where do you fall on the um, sort of spectrum of being the firm boss and being the loving matriarch, if, if we were to use those two as sort of ends of the spectrum? Um, those, are, those are really great terms. You know, um, coming to entrepreneurship at this stage um, of my life, as I did um, had the advantage of um, several different sets of experiences that um, made very clear to me um, what to do and equally what not to do. Um, I had been around, you know, people who had been incredibly effective leaders um, and people who had been, you know, practically sociopathic in in their personalities. Um, That's what that. That's I, I want to ask follow up questions, but I won't. But that's fascinating. <laughs> More on sociopathy in a second. <laughs> um, but but what it what it told me was um, it taught me a lot about who I was and who I wanted to work with, what kind of personalities I wanted to work with, and it also taught me a lot about um, my own values in terms of what kind of leader I wanted to be you know, how, how was I going to bring out the best in people? And I, I think, you know, I, I feel like I fall somewhere pretty squarely in the middle because I think, you know, if there was ever a year that's highlighted this, it's, it's this year, right? Where people are processing all of the circumstances around us in incredibly different ways. And, you know, depending on their circumstance, depending on their mental health, there are just so many complexities to life that have been introduced by this pandemic. And I think as a leader, as a teammate, as an employer, you've got to be cognizant of those things. And um, for me, what it's meant is understanding, you know, that people have these needs. I've got to sort of tend to them. Um, And at the same time, you know, there also needs to be some kind of objectivity about, hey, we're trying to get this done. I get it if it doesn't get done in a day we need to wrap it up by the end of the week, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that flexibility between, you know, it's probably an artificial construct in most of our minds when we set a deadline that we really need to meet that deadline. Um, so understanding that, you know, that deadline might move and it should move for good reasons when it does, but sometimes it just needs to move. Um, and at the same time, not saying we're just going to get rid of the deadline because, you know, who knows, right? There has to be that middle ground. And I think in a similar way, you have to strike the right tone between being 
you know, it's sort of like you want to be a super loving mother to your children, but there are also times when you're going to kind of lay down the law and say, hey, this is not okay. And it needs to get done this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wonder too, if your experience as a mother has played into that and, um, you know, this is a whole separate conversation of how having children impacts our, our career journeys in, in so many varied ways. But on this topic in particular, did did being a, a mother to your own children help you learn what your personal boundaries were and um, how best to maybe schedule your time? I mean, what did it bring out in your in you as a leader in business that you have seen yourself using time and time again? Yeah, I think um, that's such a great question. You know, I think as a parent, you parent a particular way or you start out parenting a particular way. And then you quickly realize that depending on the personality of any child, you know, it's either effective or it's kind of utterly ineffective, right? Mm -hmm. And, or somewhere in between. And, you know, with our three kids, they are pretty different personalities. And so the approach that you need to use with each of them is very different. Um, And so I think the way that translates into work is being able to recognize and assess people's personalities and then being able to work with those in different ways, right? Um, That's one. I think the second is, you know, as mothers, we develop, I think, a very high degree of emotional intelligence because we have to with our children. Um, But the flip side of that is, um, that's for some sometimes and and for some people, it's hard to thread the needle between you know kind of when you need to go deal with your family and when it just needs to be work. Mm-hmm. And you know striking that balance is tough because you're in this dual world and kind of both things need to get done. And early in my career, I used to sort of self-flagellate a ton. You know, it was like I had laid set myself these sort of goals for what needed to happen on the home front and what needed to happen on the work front. Every week, you know, I was coming up short on one or the other. And I went to this period of sort of total self-flagellation, like, why can't I get meet these goals? And, you know, what is wrong with me and so on. And, and after, you know, some time, I realized that these goals were sort of artificial, right? And, and really the attitude I had to take was, I'm not going to look at this, you know, in terms of a day or a week. I'm going to look at this in terms of a month. And I'm going to accept that some months I'm going to be short on the home stuff and I'm other months I'm going to be short on the work stuff. And I've got to learn to live with that. Um, and if I can't, then, you know, there's sort of a different problem and a different set of questions that needs to get asked. And I think as a leader, um, because you have to strike that balance, you know, there are times when you are super focused on work. And even when your child shows up wanting attention, you have to sort of say no and draw some clear boundaries between this is work and, you know, this is my time with you. Um, and, you know, the same happens in a work sphere where, you know, kind of what is the time you're spending with people understanding their emotional state? You know, this is a year where, everyone is spending time talking about that, just given how disruptive the environment has become around us. Um, But then there are also times to say, hey, you know, let's actually talk about the work thing that we're trying to get done. And, you know, we need to respect that boundary too. Do you see the business world changing um, as far as uh, how we are productive and how we reach our goals as a result of the changes that this pandemic has brought? A hundred percent. You know, I think um, 
So I am, you know, there's so much in in the news and um, in the press these days about um, it's going to go, you know, kind of a hundred percent now in the direction of remote work. And I, I really don't believe that because, uh, you know, as human beings, we need social interaction. And, you know, yes, Zoom is an amazing thing, and being able to talk to people virtually is an amazing thing, but. Um, you know, imagine how much better this conversation would be. I mean, it's great, but if you and I were sitting down in person, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is an exchange that happens um, when you're in person that just is different. And um, I think as long as that's the case and we're just wired that way as people, um, a balance is always going to be necessary. Now, what I think this um, change in, in work environment that the pandemic has necessitated has highlighted is that you also don't need to be spending five days a week in the office um, because that is probably the opposite extreme. You know, a lot can get done with a couple of days at home and sort of a couple of days in the office. And it's really a question of how do you spend your time? You know, how much of that time is interacting with people? And where do you find the focus time to actually do the work, right? Like we all have these days where you're in so many meetings that, those are great, but you haven't actually done any work right. by the end of it. And you, I, I think for everyone, it's sort of striking that balance. And, and, you know, at least for me, even though we've always been set up to work remotely, um, this pandemic, in a sense, has been an incredibly productive time, you know, because there was kind of nothing else to do besides be with your family and work. Um, so it made it made the world very simple in some ways. And there were a few distractions and, you know, you sort of got down to it. I want to pivot back to the discussion on motherhood and the impact that that can have on a woman's career trajectory. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about you, your kids are how old again? They're 10th grade? 15, 13, and 10. Okay. So when you had your now 15 year old, um, did you immediately have experienced any, or was there a need to make any changes to your job, whether it be your schedule, your field, obviously um, maternity leave is, is, an option for a, not all, but a lot of women. Did you take that? And, and what was the immediate change that motherhood brought into your career? So I think, you know, the, the, the immediate change was, was emotional, right? Because it was, um, especially after, right after we had our first child, I really needed the first few months to sort of adjust to this idea that there was this very little, very fragile being that was so dependent on me and, and on, on, you know, kind of everyone else in our household. And I was really overwhelmed by that at the beginning. Um, and so the, and I was working when, when we had our first child, um, but I had always sort of set it up so that I could do some work from home. That was a huge help, right? I mean, ha not having the pressure of having to spend five days a week in the office mm -hmm. was the single most critical thing. And I think as mothers, um, you know, it's sort of a real trip, right? Psychologically, because with every one of our three children, I went through this journey of, uh, you know, I would have the baby, I would sort of be in this kind of earth mother mode where I would think, wow, I can spend, you know, my whole life breastfeeding and isn't this amazing? And I'm so bonded with my child. And somewhere around that sort of two, two, two and a half month mark, I would have this, you know, pretty quick realization that this could not be my life and that I needed to have this sort of adult time, the work involvement, the social aspect of work. And it was deeply important to me and Earth Mother was not in my future. Um, so I think um, 
you know, I was, I was very fortunate to be able to take maternity leave, which, you know, it's a joke that that isn't sort of a standard set thing in our country when it is in every other developed country around the world. Um, and, and number two, you know, I, um, had the flexibility to be able to work from home some days and kind of always realize the importance of that. And it's almost like, you know, what it taught me was that when I was changing jobs throughout my career, it didn't even occur to me to ask somebody whether I could work from home. You know, I just always assumed that that was what I was going to do. And to be honest, like it was very seldom questioned, you know, because when I was working at home, I was still working. Like it wasn't as though, you know, I just wasn't available for three hours of that day because I was at home or something. But it was super important to me to be at home, to at least be around my kids, to be able to have lunch with them, whatever it was. Um, so I think the, the, you know, the shift and, and I've been struck by this over the years and, and I've ended up advising, you know, a lot of my friends is when you are a mother, I think you need to really give yourself sort of a year to understand who you are as a mother and how you really feel about your need for work. And um, the importance of that is, so lots of women say, you know, I'm going to stop working because, um, you know, my paycheck doesn't sort of cover the childcare cost or, you know, what's the point if it's, um, uh, you know, if it's, if I can't advance in my career the way that I expected to and wanted to. And I think both of those are probably the wrong decisions for most people, because I think um, what they don't realize is that taking yourself completely out of the game leaves you with very few options. Um, so I think that, you know, even if you scale it back in terms of your ambitions or your hours or whatever, and even if you are a net deficit between what you're earning and, I mean, obviously, if you can do, you know, afford to do this, right, we're, we're sort of in a privileged position where we can. But if you can um, make it financially such that it's not a huge cost, but there may be some cost involved in you working um, while being a mother, that's well worth it because of the option value, because at some point your kids are going to grow up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially if you have girls, they're looking to you as their mother to understand what kind of a role model you are. And, um, you know, your kids just don't need you as much. And you can't then be at a loss for, you know, I don't know what to do with myself and I have no on-ramp back. Mm -hmm that stage. You know, frankly, it's overwhelming to me too, especially when you brought up the point of modeling for our, our daughters, how much we do as women and the time and energy spent in our lives, accommodating, well, making life and accommodating others. I mean, I, I get so emotional thinking about all of the roles that we play and, and the appreciation that grows in, in me every year looking at my own mom or how women have, have existed in this world, because we, I don't want to sound sexist, but I feel like we do so much more than men in that regard, the pivoting, the shape shifting, the constant taking into account of other people's needs. And if I do this, how does it impact my children, my partner, my coworkers? Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, um, I guess, not feminism as it's traditionally sort of defined, but um, your take, your appreciation, your awe for women 
and, and the role in our society, especially since you've become a mother and made all these changes and pivots? Um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's such an interesting topic. So I think, um, you know, there is no, as you said, there is nobody else in our society who wears the number of hats and has the sheer breadth of what being a working mother involves. Um, and, and, you know, I think women have always played that role and they have never been fairly acknowledged or compensated or recognized for that role that they play. Um, I think that it's, you know, in some ways it is a cross we bear, right? Because we bear it willingly and we enable, because of our shape-shifting, this sort of multiplicity of responsibilities and roles that we come to play um, in, in other people's lives. And at the same time, I think um, it's so necessary to always be thinking about ourselves, right? Like our mental health and our needs, which often get subsumed because there's just this sort of culture of sacrificing yourself, you know, especially once you have children, right? It's like, well, I'm going to put my needs aside because, you know, the child needs this. And recognizing, you know, kind of where you are on any given day or week on that spectrum um, is super important because if you go too far one way, you lose yourself, you know, and in losing yourself, you then become uh, worse and more unhappy um, at playing all these roles that we sort of expect ourselves to play. Um, I, you know, I think for the first time, maybe um, we are living through a time when men have, are starting to evolve, right? Or, or more men are starting to evolve than they have been evolved in the past, um, where they recognize that role and they want to support their wives. You know, children want to support their mothers. They have a true respect for, you know, the role that we play as women. And, you know, there was a super interesting article in The Atlantic um, several months ago now, and it was about how to raise a son and the importance of fathers transmitting to their sons the appreciation of the role that their mothers, sisters, and, and other women play in their lives, because it's the only way for them to evolve as men. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I think we're making some progress. It never feels fast enough, you know, no, when you doesn't. think about this world where 45 years later, you know, people are still debating whether women should have a choice, just have a choice. Like no one's trying to mandate anything one way or another, but people are objecting to the ability of women to choose how they should treat their bodies. That's a crazy place to be, you know? And so the fight is like not even remotely over. And it sort of behooves each of us, I think, to play our role in that. You know, and I'm just like, I have never gotten emotional before, but during a podcast, this is probably the PM is talking, but I do often look at my daughters and the sort of um, constant compounding of expectations that will be on them as they grow. Social media, uh, you know, the pressures of, of a completely different world. And I just, it's like, you can't, I can't properly, I feel as a mother sometimes, how can I properly prepare them? You know, we, here we are having discussions about things that are 
relatively black and white. Do you work? Do you not work? How do you make it work? And when the world we're handing our, our daughters in particular, I just, it just makes me very, very anxious. And I wonder if having, uh, you have one or two daughters of your three. Two. Two. Yeah. So that's same here. I mean, do you ever have that feeling and how do you, um, how do you talk yourself out of it? Or how do you feel that you're adequately preparing them? I mean, I, right now, especially, I have a huge sense of anxiety about this, right? And I think that um, somehow we have gotten ourselves to a place in our world where our girls are getting the rawest deal, right? They are the ones who have increasing rates of anxiety and depression. Um, there are all kinds of body image issues. All of this is being amplified by social media all the time. Um, you know, the traditional media has its own role to play in kind of constantly looking for negative news stories and never having an interest in covering the positive. And so when you think about our girls, they're kind of bombarded on all sides, you know, with this constant negativity, constant pressure to be, you know, some sort of bizarre ideal of what they should be. And for me as a mother, um, and, and I was fortunate that my own mother was like this, you know, when, when I, so I, I lost my mother when I was 12. And um, my mother was just an incredible role model for me, just even in that 12 years. And she taught me kind of, you know, sort of everything I've become. Um, but I, I went from being with my mother to then living with my, with my aunt and uncle and my aunt was my mother's sister, but she was a very different personality, super traditional, didn't work, didn't particularly believe in women working, you know, just very traditional and conservative. And we had a lot of conflict and the conflicts were all about, you know, my just finding that, that now I was with this person who was, who was, you know, in every way a surrogate parent to me and did the best that she could, but did not have the tools to equip me to kind of deal with all of these influences in the world. And so as a mother, when I became a mother, it became the single two most important things to me became, you know, treating all of our kids equally. So they did not feel any sense of sort of relative preference among them. Um, but then the second was building resilience, right? And confidence in them. And I think that, um, you know, the role modeling piece, but equally just being an open resource for them so they can really talk about anything, you know, and, and some of that is that they come to you proactively, but the other half of it is that you're watching them as their mother and you're starting some of those conversations, even when they don't want to have them at times. Mm -hmm. But I think, even when they don't want to have them with you, them understanding and knowing that you are there and ready to talk about that topic becomes a huge source of support and confidence to them. Um, you know, I think the school environment really matters. Like we've been really lucky to have our girls in a school that is, has such a variety of different personalities, but their single goal is getting every one of these girls to understand who they are and who they want to be as women and find their voice and to use their voice. And that's been an incredibly powerful thing. So, you know, partly because of the school and our culture at home, you know, our girls have developed a very sensible skepticism about social media. You know, they haven't defined their self-worth by sort of, you know, how many likes and how many boys and all that stuff. Um, 
and so I think finding a way to have, you know, the educational environment and your environment at home kind of reinforcing one another is really important. You know, it's the single biggest service we can do as mothers, I think, for our girls. And to tell them that it's okay, you know, to have some bad days. I think, you know, there's a super interesting book um, that I was reading about stress and anxiety in, in young women. And, and the, one of the first things it says is that when young women come to you as a parent or teachers and say, you know, I'm really anxious about this or I'm really having trouble with that, you know, most people's reaction is to say, oh, don't be anxious or don't be worried. Um, and that is entirely the wrong reaction, right? The, the right reaction is to say, I understand that you're worried, you know, kind of what can we do to make you better prepared for the test or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of prepare you for this social interaction that you're feeling anxious about and actually have that conversation so that we acknowledge and understand their feelings. And at the same time, um, communicate to them that there's there's a sort of way to alleviate that and to work through it. I love that. What the name of that book again was? What Sam? Um, it's stress and anxiety in girls, and um, I'm forgetting the name of the writer, but I will send it to you. Yeah, send it to me, and I'll put it in show notes. Um, as as we wrap here, I would love to know what's next for Idea Mix and the podcast and everything you guys are doing. Um, so, you know, I couldn't be more excited about what we're doing at IdeaMix. Our website came out in June. Um, we've had just really great positive reception to it. Um, and, you know, for me, it was always important that we created a community at IdeaMix whereby people could come in, listen to the podcast, read articles in our library to find the inspiration um, to find examples and role models of other people who had done it across a variety of consumer service or product industries, right? They're, the one thing that's so clear to me from all the entrepreneurs that I talk to and interview on IDMX Radio is that everyone has a distinct and unique path to how they got there. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no one way. And, you know, figuring out what your way is, I think, comes from understanding that there are many different paths and sort of seeing a piece of yourself or, or relating to another person's story. So I think the inspiration piece is super important. The other is, you know, what are the practical, tactical tools that we can give people to help them work through these stages of developing the entrepreneurial skill set? So whether it's that they're coming in to take Idea Lab courses, or our entrepreneur program for college students that just launched this fall, um, where we're really trying to talk to college students about entrepreneurship, not through the lens of you must go and start your company, but you need this set of skills as you enter any workplace and, and kind of learning and embracing and furthering those skills has to be at the center of sort of what you think about as you progress in your work life. Um, so I'm hugely excited about, you know, all of these different fronts and, and all of the people in our, in our community um, who have been just incredible at, you know, making themselves available, the entrepreneurs who are getting involved with our college entrepreneur program now to mentor and interact with college students. Um, so I couldn't be more excited. That's, and if anyone's interested in maybe attending um, a, a workshop or getting to work with one of the people who are at IdeaMix, what's the best way to connect? 
Um, the best way is through our website. So our website is um, theideamix.com. Um, we have sort of everything that we do is, is on it. And um, it's super easy to, you know, do anything from sign up for a newsletter just to get updates on what we're up to, um, to sign up for a course, listen to the podcast, read our articles in the library. And, and soon um, the commerce piece uh, will be up and running where um, members of our community can actually buy a curated set of products from the companies of the founders and entrepreneurs who have been on our show. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, we will yeah. definitely check it out. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. I truly, truly appreciate it. Sunny, thank you so much. And it's been really wonderful chatting. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. I loved every minute of talking with Sam and feel like she gave such incredible advice to anybody who's on the verge of making any big professional or personal changes. So thank you so much, Sam, for sharing your wisdom. If you want to check out more on The Idea Mix, you can go to their website, theideamix.com. Follow them on Instagram at the same name, The Idea Mix. And as Sam mentioned, they have workshops and teams that are built specifically to uh, toward helping you bring your passion to life. So make sure you tap into their incredible network of resources that are listed on their website to help you make your dream real because we're all about those second chapters here on We Gotta Talk. So I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we will be back with live episodes of We Gotta Talk on Facebook. Facebook.com slash We Gotta Talk. Um, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern. I almost forgot for a second. And then, of course, the podcast episodes drop every Thursday morning, bright and early. Thank you guys so much for listening. Do please subscribe, rate, review. All of those things make a huge difference in getting these episodes out to people who might enjoy them or find them useful. And especially on Apple Podcasts, that's huge. All right, guys, thanks again. I'll see you next week with some more goodness.